Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And we aspire to have real conversations, not over-edited and produced interviews, with the amazing people who are making our world a different place. And uh, recently we've been conducting a survey of our listeners. If you want to participate, go to lockhead.com slash survey, and this is your chance to tell us what you think. And I am reading every single one of them. And a listener recently told us that um, participating or listening to this podcast is like, quote, uh, being a fly on the wall in a high-level conversation. And there are great insights from people with proven, proven legendary results. Now, if that sounds like you, you're in the right place. On this episode, we have Serial Entrepreneur, a guy that's had real big-time success in both B2B and B2C, and he's the co-founder and chairman of Strava, my buddy, Mark Ganey. We're sponsored by our friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. And I also want to tell you about my friends at bottleneck.online. Uh, are you feeling whelmed? Overly, that is? My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help you scale you. So if NetSuite's about scaling your business, Bottleneck's about scaling you with the power of a virtual assistant. Go to bottleneck.online today. That's bottleneck.online to find out about how a virtual assistant can make a difference. Okay, Mark. He's that rare entrepreneur who's had success in both B2B and B2C. He's the co-founder and chairman of Strava. And if you're an athlete, particularly a cyclist, you know Strava. It's the athlete's social network. And, and so Mark knows a lot about building companies, about building engagement, about building community, um, a, a lot of things that all of us need to know about today. And we have a powerful conversation. And I think, again, this conversation is a great example of the power of a um, freeform dialogue podcast, because there's no other way to get into it with an entrepreneur like Mark and learn from him. We have a fun, insight-packed conversation about entrepreneurship. We go very deep. You'll learn Mark is a humble, thoughtful, and inspiring business creator. And Mark has overcome some major setbacks in his life, including a life-threatening life bike accident. I know you're going to love him. Check out uh, the show notes at lockhead.com for the key takeaways from this episode. Now, hey-ho, let's go. One of uh, Strava's great ironies, here we serve the world cyclists, and I'm probably one of the worst ones on the planet. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, are, you the, are, you, are you in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the worst cyclist of all time? Uh, they've been in touch. Uh, they're yeah. trying to verify that. Yeah, no, and the, uh, at least on the road, that would be the case. I think I've, let's see, I've been put in the hospital twice by cars, and then uh, the accident you're referring to was my own fault. And you're right, I, I, I took a spill back in... Uh, was Memorial Day of 2001. Oh, wow. Is that long ago? 18 years. Uh, yeah, I took it. Where, where were you when it happened? So, uh, you know, we're talking here from Northern California. I was up at the top of a road called Page Mill, way up near Skyline, uh, just, just starting my descent after a beautiful ride to the coast. I was, uh, I was 10 days away from Ironman, Utah. So I was in a big training mode and all excited about this upcoming race. And, uh, 
Christopher, the short thing is I hit a pothole. I never saw it, but I hit a hole on the road and, and just unfortunately the way that I fell um, uh, just caused a whole lot of damage, particularly on my, to my left arm. So they airlifted me to Stanford. They brought a helicopter up and took me down. And then 11 surgeries later, uh, I was back on the road. Or at least, actually, I don't ride on the road as much these days, but I, I will ride on the road to get to dirt. So I'm, I'm back on my mountain bike and I'm back skiing and, and back uh, doing all the things I want to. But it took a while. How many surgeries again, Mark? 11 surgeries on my arm. Wow. And so there was not a car or any other vehicle involved. You just hit a pothole. It was my own fault. Yeah. I never saw it, but, uh, and I really don't know for sure what it was, but I'm, I'm, I believe it was a pothole. Uh, and I just, unfortunately the way that I fell, uh, and then slid, I just did some unusual damage to my arm that took a long time to repair. Yeah. And you were, you were going downhill down page mill from skyline. I was, although I wasn't even in a particularly steep section. I was right at the top. Uh, I was underneath a canopy of trees. I, I think, ironically, the problem that happened to me, not that people care, but after being out in the sunlight for a, a, long, a long stretch there, I just underneath some, some trees there at the very top of Page Mill Road, and the light changed, and you get these shadows, and I, you know, I probably was getting a little too comfortable. I realized that I was 15, 20 minutes from home, and you know, your mind sometimes turns off. It's happened to me. It's happened to me a couple of times. I had a ski accident actually just a few years ago where I unfortunately shattered my tibia. And it was the same thing where I'd been on this great run with a bunch of buddies doing some pretty hard stuff. And then we were 30 seconds from the chair. I was like, I was shifting into a different mode. And next thing I knew I was tumbling like a rag doll and I left my tibia in a you know, a bunch of pieces. So is it one of those where you like catch an inside edge on a lazy turn and all of a sudden you're crushing yourself or something along those lines? Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a funny edge on, uh, you know, some funky snow and picking up some speed. And I know exactly where my head was, which was, okay, where are my boys? What time is lunch? You know, can I catch one more run? And I just, I wasn't paying attention. And, uh, the next thing I knew I was paying the price. It's funny too. It's the same thing in surfing. It's not when you're surfing on your outer edge in Indonesia or Fiji on some wave that maybe you shouldn't be on, particularly if you're me. (laughs) It's never that wave that you get crushed on. I mean, I, I, you know, I have had incidents in waves like that that are spooky, but the ones you really get hurt on are, you know, ankle to knee high and you just fall funny or whatever it is. And like, it's just, and what I've learned with skiing and now with surfing, you know, I used to think, um, leave feeling like you had one more good run in you or one more good wave in you. And now I think it's leave thinking you have three more good waves in you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You're spot on. It's funny. I've got these twin boys now, Jake and Charlie, and uh, uh, they're, they're my skiing compadres. They're my surfing compadres. We can talk all day long about these two sports, but we always will refer to the fact of, you know, second to last run. You guys ready for the second to last run of the day? And it's just, it, it is absolutely Murphy's Law. As long as we're doing second to last run, everything's good. But never, ever are we going for just one more. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just funny how that works. So how many, how many times have you been in the hospital uh, for a, uh, a self-inflicted wound, so to speak? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, I mean, the running joke used to be that we had a stenciled parking space at Stanford Medical Center. I mean, I've, I've had, 
I've had 18 surgeries over the course of my 51 year life. So I've, I've, uh, and if I then add other reasons that I've been into the hospital, boy, I hate to admit Christopher. I mean, there's probably another, another dozen times. I, I mean, yeah. yeah, my middle name could easily be Klutz. It's, uh, <laughs> or, or evil can evil Mark, Mark yeah, can <laughs> you know, but the evil can evil was like, he was jumping the Grand Canyon. I, that, going back to your earlier point, my my accidents uh, happen at some of the most obscure and uh, uh, just unusual times. Un- yeah. Unexpected. Well, a- hey, just for the record, Mr. Ganey, I'm really glad you haven't killed yourself, and I really hope you stop trying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. No, no. Nobody's dying anytime soon, but uh, it is a testament to I, I will also – you just, you get back in the saddle. You just, you, you learn and it's like you said, okay, now I can have three more good runs. Live yeah, to play exactly. another day. And so you're, you're, you're back on the bike, you're back skiing, you're back surfing. That's right. Oh yeah. yeah. It's uh, mission critical to my sanity. It's, uh, I think that's the balance. As much as uh, I know that I take a risk every time I go out there, the idea of not doing that, that is what would kill me. You know, it's funny when I, I don't know if you have this, when I go through periods in my life for whatever reason, whether it's I'm coming back from an injury or, you know, there've been times in the last couple of years, I've gotten into a real flow with the podcast or writing. And for whatever reason, I just, uh, my, my level of physical activity goes from where I like it to some meaningful drop off for, you know, maybe you're traveling, whatever it is. And you go two or three weeks or, you know, like I had a, um, a knee injury at the beginning of this year. And for the first three months of the year, I just really wasn't myself physically. And, 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 you know, for a couple of weeks, it's sort of okay. But like for me, after about two weeks of a big drop off in my physical activity, I kind of become a person I don't like as much. Absolutely. Oh yeah. It sneaks up on you. It's, uh, but it can, it can be, and it can be very infectious. Uh, I mentioned my boys earlier. They'll notice it. They'll they'll start to. Dad, have you have you worked out lately? Yeah. Um, so I know exactly what you're talking about. It's it's uh, you know I know at some point here we can talk a bit about Strava and the, the, the company I'm fortunate to be a part of today. But it, it, that was its primary mission. It was you know forget trying to get people to go fast and and you know perform well. We just Michael and I both realized we're just better people when we're able to have activity and, and some way to sweat, you know, hopefully once a day. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. once a day, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a while back we had, um, professor Scott Galloway on from Stern and why you Stern, you know, he's a big damn deal now on social media and he's got this, his second book is called the algebra of happiness. And it's a great, great book based on a lot of research into happiness. Anyway, one of the things he said, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, but he, he, he made the comment that, um, you show me a guy who watches sports with people sweating more than he sweats. And I'll show you a guy with broken relationships, bad health and a fucked up career. <laughs> I don't know if he quite said it that way, but it's sort of yeah. in that general direction. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's the fan and there's the participant and uh, you have to be very careful which side of that equation you end up on too often. Well, and I love being a fan. Oh you know, yeah. We all do. Right. But, um, oh, yeah. And I love yeah. drinking California yeah. IPAs on the couch, watching, you know, Go Warriors. playoffs or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, there is a limit to that. So maybe let's go to Strava. You know, one of the things I find fascinating about your career um, 
you typically don't see entrepreneurs in our world, in the tech world, uh, go from you know, a big B2B success like you had in Kana. And then years later, you know, and maybe I'm not thinking about it right, you'll tell me, but Strava feels much more like a B2C play than a B2B play. Maybe it's a little bit of, you'll tell me. But, and so it's just interesting to see you go from Kana where you were selling email and communications technology to major corporations, did incredibly well doing that. And then, and then switch to this more uh, consumer-oriented lifestyle athletic uh, platform in Strava. So uh, maybe share some of that with me, Mark. What's that been like for you? Sure. Yeah, no, you're, you are spot on. Uh, and uh, it, it was intentional, uh, for better or worse. Uh, and, and there are probably days when Michael and I, my co-founder, we, we, I don't know that we'd ever say we regret it, but there, there are challenges uh, kind of making that shift, but it was intentional. It goes back to, um, so the official start date of, of Strava is 2009 now, 10 years ago. Uh, but if you actually go back to its, its origins, it dates back to uh, the summer of 2006. Michael and I had, so in fact, let me go even further back uh, to give people some context. So I refer to Michael. He's my co-founder. He's been my best friend for 30 plus years. And, and we met in college together on the crew team. Uh, we were rowers and, and you know, formed a bond there that is now gone on for decades. Uh, he and I graduated. I, he graduated in 88. I graduated in 1990. And as early as 1995, Christopher, we had a business plan that was, for all intents and purposes, Strava. Um, it was called Kana Sports at the time. And it was this concept that we wanted to create a virtual locker room. And what had happened was the two of us had graduated and after this amazing experience in the Newell Boathouse uh, and this experience for three or four years of rowing together, there was just this huge void that we had in our life uh, that we couldn't figure out how to replace uh, with, uh, you know, professional careers, things like that. Michael had gone off, he got his PhD at Stanford, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, at uh, Northwestern, but was teaching at Stanford at the time. And I was Starting Sounds a career like a real bum with a PhD from Northwestern oh. teaching at Stanford must be uh, mentally challenged. <laughs> he, he's the one that should be on the podcast. There's no question. <laughs> Michael, you know, there's many reasons why he's still my best friend, but one of them is, uh, yeah, you hold on to very bright uh, people like that in your life. Um, uh, so he's got a big CPU in his cranium, does he not? Oh, yeah. No question about it. Uh, and, and then, but a heart to go with it, which is uh, what's more important. Um, so back to your question. Yeah, we, we had these roots. So we've had this concept in the back of our minds. And I can bore you with the story around how Kana Sports basically morphed into Kana Communications, the, the enterprise business that you mentioned. Uh, and we had a great time building that. No regrets, because uh, it did sort of evolve pretty rapidly into something. What great. was the final outcome at Kana? Remind me, Mark. You know, uh, so we, we took Kana Public in, in late 1999. Uh, I left the company in the middle of 2000 after we'd, we'd hired a new CEO and so forth. And, and I was moving on to a different chapter in my life. Uh, Did you sell before the crash, Mark? You know, uh, well, as you and I will both know. Uh, <laughs> you and I, I'm assuming you're a little bit like me, which is you would like two minutes with your broker in March of 2000 back in your life. Just two minutes. <laughs> Well, and, and, 
we would have even before that would have negotiated some different uh, lockup restrictions and things like that. You know, good news, bad news. I mean, uh, was I able to sell at the peak of the market and, and maximize my returns? No, uh, not anywhere close. Um, did I have good advisors around me that that helped me? And you know, did we do just fine given the craziness of the time? Yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I'll never regret uh, regret it. And, you know, Connor went on to remain a public, independently independent company for uh, a number of years, and then it was uh, it was taken private by KKR uh, and they I knew it was, uh, it was private but I didn't remember the KKR part that's fascinating yeah they didn't they, they were they were pretty smart they actually from everything I can understand they they sort of uh, they simplified you know they niched down as you like to go they, they figured out that there were some core assets there uh, that existed from day one and uh, turned around and it was ultimately sold to um, oh gosh I'm gonna Ballast or anyhow, uh, sort of another I love, large. I love that you don't remember. <laughs> yeah, no. You know what was the market cap at the height? Do you remember? Oh yeah, eleven billion. And uh, wow. Yeah, and then uh, what did KKR buy it for? <laughs> Do you remember? That I that I don't know. I, yeah. I you know honestly, Christopher, I will acknowledge when I left in the summer of two thousand. Um, I really found myself having to, I distanced myself in a pretty meaningful way. It was, it was hard. It's, I've often uh, joked to people that um, if you give your child up for adoption, don't stay living in the house. It's, it's, yeah. it's not a, it's not, you know, I, we knew, I, I knew we brought a new CEO in. I was comfortable with that decision. Uh, but I, I realized I needed to move on. So I, I don't know a lot of the kind of history. Close yeah. To my and actually, I think that's a wise thing. You know, I, we've all seen founder CEO types hand over to a new CEO, stay on the board, maybe be exec chair and sort of still get involved and, and never really relinquish the reins to the new CEO. And of course, if you're the new CEO, that makes it, you know, so the clean break thing, I think, is a very powerful idea. Some, some, of course, choose to stay on the board and figure out how to be valuable board members, and I really respect that. But I also think there's real power in doing the kind of thing you did, which is, here are the keys. Try not to wrap it around the lamppost. I'm out of here. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, uh, well, I'm playing out both strategies. So we'll see which one works, works best. Because in Strava, uh, I probably did James's... Uh, uh, frustration at times. Who's our new CEO there? I'm, I'm, I'm still engaged with that company. So, we'll, so how we'll recently see. did you hand over the CEO keys at Strava? Uh, two years tomorrow. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. having it, this is it's so interesting, right? B two B in one case. Um, you know, obviously public, so you have all that experience. But hand over the keys and leave. B two C in Strava's case hand over the keys and, uh, hey, I'm going to stick around like a fart in the elevator here for a while. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. What's, how do you contrast those two experiences? Yeah, so I think you're right. Let's go back. You're, even your question around why, why B2C. So the thing that happened in summer of 2006, Michael and I sat down together knowing, Frank, we were still too young to just be sitting on boards. And you know, we often joke, or I, I joke that sitting on boards is a bit like eating junk food. It tastes really good in the moment, but it just wasn't satisfying enough. It just wasn't the thing that was floating our boat. And so he and I committed, hey, we're going to go start something again. And that, that moment was important for a couple of reasons. One was, 
One was when we started to sit and just think about the companies that we admired, we realized that they, we couldn't list a whole lot of enterprise software companies. The companies that we admired most out in the, in the world today, they were these sort of trusted brands. They were the, you know, I always refer to the Oakleys and the Patagonias and the, you know, in my sports world or, or the virgins uh, of the world that you just, you just admire what they've been able to do over decades. Uh, and so that was intriguing to us intellectually. Could we go and create that trusted brand? And then the other thing I think that relates to your, your other question, you know, what, why stay involved? Was it Michael and I were very much of the mindset that we didn't want to be serial entrepreneurs. We, we didn't, it wasn't interesting to us to just think about starting another company and another company, another company. It was, it was going back ironically to some unfinished business that we had during the Kana days. Uh, and that was this concept of build to last. So I will acknowledge one of my, one of my big heroes is Jim Collins. And, you know, we gave two books to everybody who you joined. You and me both, brother. I mean, that guy, uh, uncalculable, his contribution to the business world, right? No, no question. Uh, you know, so much so that we gave everybody at Kana the book Built to Last and the book uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. It was sort of the yin and the yang. And we really felt like for all the wonderful things that Kana provided for us, um, you know, whether it was financial, whether it was education, whether, you know, just the fun of, of that period of time to build a company. The one piece of unfinished business was it was not built to last. It was not, uh, it was not an organization that was able to really withstand the test of time and, and, and you know, out, outlive our, our existence. So for Strava, it was, it's been very intentional. We've wanted to go and create an organization that, uh, frankly, I'd love nothing more than to be here decades from now and long past my tenure. Um, and so that's, to answer your question, James, when he took the role, he understood that Michael and I, as co-founders, can recognize where our lanes need to be, sort of what our responsibilities and what we need to accept uh, we can't be involved in. And, and we're still learning that as we evolve, but that he needed to understand that we're going to be involved here. And if done yeah. right, it's, it's, it's a wonderful working relationship. It's, it's a way to, to take the best of everything we have and put it together. So maybe let's dig into that. You know, if I was a younger entrepreneur founder um, and sort of thinking about a, a CEO transition like the one that you've done uh, now twice, it was two completely different approaches. What are the key learnings about, what would you tell me about how to have a successful CEO transition in either scenario, one where you're staying or one where you're leaving? Yeah. So I think that there's a... Uh, there are some big differences between these two. Let me start with where the differences are and then we can get into sort of how to manage it. In the case of Kana, and, and you'll remember this period of time, we used to refer to the acronym GBF, get big fast. I mean, everything was just on a, uh, everything was hyperspeed. And that included sort of these executive changes. So the context of that CEO change that took place in the 99 timeframe was as follows. Kana was under significant pressure. We were actually, we had acquisition offers. Uh, it was clear that some very large organizations were beginning to kind of point their guns at, at us and our business. Uh, we, we felt as an organization that we still had more to do and that just selling the business wasn't the right choice. Uh, and so that led to conversations with Goldman Sachs and others to take the company public, even though we were still a very immature organization. And so there was a decision at that point that, boy, we need to bring some public company experience to the table. So there were some very tactical things that were going on. 
And <clears throat> what started as a, a board discussion around how do we reshape the board uh, just through serendipity uh, turned into an executive decision because there was a gentleman, uh, his name was Michael McCloskey, and he was an entrepreneur in residence at Benchmark Capital, which is one of our lead investors at the time. And what started as a, hey, would you consider joining our board turned into, well, you're looking for a new CEO role. I, you know, title isn't relevant to me. I don't, you know, that's, that's not a problem. Hey, would you consider coming in and, and thinking about that? So a very long story short, there was a, a very short courtship. We brought Michael in. He was the quote unquote seasoned executive with all kinds of public company experience. And, you know, he'd been a CFO for, for some other great companies and so forth. So just, you know, a series of changes. We literally filed our S1 as we were hiring him. Um, and so what did I learn? Well, what I learned was that courtship is really, really important. Uh, you know, what, what took place in a matter of weeks um, and just, you know, just that, you know, the things I've learned around referencing, the things I've learned around uh, what the, the short version of how I would describe what then happened was oil and water. Uh, Michael and I were, were, not of the same mindset, sort of how we thought about just the importance of certain, certain things culturally in a business and, and how we'd manage. Now, I fully recognized that I had given up the keys, as you mentioned, to the car, and, and, uh, but I was trying to also stay engaged. I was still president and chairman of the organization and was looking for a role, uh, was asking him, how can I be of help? And I think Michael was, uh, McCloskey, I think he was he wasn't sure. He, he wasn't comfortable. He didn't know what a role would be. And so that was in the same way that I talk about hyperspeed. I probably quickly came to the decision that, boy, life is too short here. I've, I've accepted my position as, um, as sort of the ex-CEO. Uh, going back to that phrase I said earlier, let's, let's get out of the house. Um, I've, I've given this child up for adoption. You fast and then it forward. sounds like after you got to that place, you just made that break and kind of that was that. I, I did. There's, I mean, if we really want to get into the details, I still tried to stay on the board. Uh, so I, I, I left my role as president and, and the day-to-day -day operations of the business, but I remained on the board. I did that for one board meeting, Christopher. I, I, it was the summer of 2000. And at that point, the challenge I had was that you could feel the sand shifting underneath the, the foundation of the business. Uh, yet we were still performing financially very well. So it just, there was a big disconnect between what I was sensing and, and trying to articulate, but I was still, I was still very young. As you mentioned, boy, you know, we're going back now. You, you and I are the years. same age. I, I remember yeah. the summer of 2000, like yesterday, because man, oh man, there's a set of dumb decisions I made personally that summer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the, yeah. it's exactly. And you could see it just happening and, 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 in uh, kind of this multiplication factor of just the way in which these dumb decisions that, you know, a lot of this stuff that happened to Connie, it was self-inflicted. But so I survived one board meeting and just realized in some ways I knew too much. I knew what was going on internally. It wasn't necessarily being articulated well at the board. Um, there were some personal things. Lisa and I at the time were trying to, we'd been trying unsuccessfully to have kids for three years and, you know, I just, it was time. So you're right. I made a clean break. I left the organization under very good terms, but, you know, moved on. And, and, and as we talked about earlier, Connor did just fine. Um, yeah, the, the other thing about that that's interesting, I'm curious your take on this. 
many of us, particularly sort of type A, entrepreneurial oriented people, whether we realize it or not, it's certainly been true for me is you, you can you can trick yourself in your head that, you know, well, the organization needs me, right? Oh, yeah. And there's this great saying, the uh, first time I heard it was uh, uh, from Israeli friends, a Hebrew saying, I'm not sure where it came from originally, but the saying is, the graveyards are full of indispensable men. Yes. Uh, and and it, in some ways, it's terrifying on a kind of um, identity level, but in other ways, it's a little freeing to realize that like six to 12 weeks after you're gone, most people sort of forget who you are. Because they just, the truth is they get on with their lives, right? It's sort of, hey, I, if, I'm, if I'm the CMO at Kana or I'm a developer and well, you know, our founder CEO is gone, but like, I got a job to do, man. I got to put feet on my family, as George Bush said, and you know, I got to get on with my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you, it's funny, we, we mentioned Collins earlier and I, I recently pulled out another one of his great books, the, the Good to Great, and he starts right there, right at the beginning. He talks about this whole notion of, I think he refers to as level five leadership. And what does he say? It's like, humility. You know, what are these great, humility, humility and will, right? Those are the two characteristics that they have. But here, exactly right. Humility, you know, the definition of just recognizing that your value isn't what you think it is. And, and um, that's right. I, I, it was good for me to, to get that early on. Um, be humbled a bit from a, from a number of factors. Uh, it's also a, a humbling thing to look at your uh, a sort of financial picture and see that your stock, in this case, in your case, Kana, is worth all this money, and you know we were in the bubble and all that. And you, 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 it, it's easy to trick yourself into thinking, well, this is what I'm quote unquote worth, and then in the space of less than a year, to be worth some meaningfully tiny percentage of the number that you saw on the paper nine, 10, 12 months earlier. It's like, it is a mind fuck, isn't it? Oh, I mean, no you don't have to be a money oriented person to get, to get a mind fuck about that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think it, probably the only saving grace or, or sort of silver lining there was that, uh, you know, we, we'd had nothing to begin with. And, and again, people, people also, I always remind people, you know, in the case of Kana, um, like people would often refer to, oh, well, you were there, you know, during the bubble and so forth. And it's like, let me explain something. You know, when we did our first round of venture capital, uh, you know, Michael and I were out banging on doors. Here I am in my mid-20s, uh, zero experience building a company, zero management experience, you know, nothing to warrant anybody giving us capital. And so we sold 40% of that business for $700,000. Um, and we were excited about it. Like, you know, people are like, how could you do that? It's like, because it was speed over greed. Like we had to, we had to fund this business. We could see there was an opportunity. Um, so, you know, that's my first point is like, look, it's, and, and we were very happy. I'm also the first one to point out that I, I would do it again, knowing what I know, because, Hey, it's all about how big a pie can you make? And don't worry about your slice. But, uh, the old uh, 60% of something's better worth than better than 100% of nothing, right? You got it. You got it. And I think too many entrepreneurs get wrapped around the axle around their percentage ownership and, and you know they're, they're counting their pennies too too early. So for Lisa and I it was funny. I'll never forget probably the best day we ever had was even before we went public where there was a for all intents and purposes there was like a, a mini version of a secondary that took place at at Kana before going public and 
I forget. I think, you know, we probably had a check for a few hundred thousand dollars that, that, you know, it was that, that to me was probably the highlight. Forget the, the, the millions and what we were worth on paper and so forth. The, the idea that we could do that and, and for the first time in our lives, not think month to month, uh, that was, it was worth it. Yeah. It's a big change when you go from struggling to that first, you know, check of, of meaningful size, right? It's, it's, it's a mind blower. It, it, and it also, it really, um, there's somewhere, Christopher, even going back and preparing for this uh, talk you and I are having, I was, there was somewhere where you'd written about sort of, was it vertical income versus horizontal or vertical yeah. wealth versus horizontal? And yeah. for me, it was this lesson in, in horizontal. It's like, you know, I can go and try to earn a paycheck all day long, but frankly, let's, let's go build value. Let's go figure out how to increase the value of something that I own. And that's been, indispensable as I've gone forward in life. You know, this is something I don't know why we don't teach in school, right? But, and I'm sure you've heard this expression, which is give a person a paycheck and you're going to ruin their lives, mm-hmm. right? This, this distinction between horizontal and vertical, that is to say, if, if your whole paradigm is in order for me to make money, I must work, right? Like I talked to a lot of people who are going solo, they're becoming solopreneurs, right? And they're like, how much should I charge an hour? I said, look, do whatever you want to do, but I think charging by hour is absolutely insane. I think you should charge for value. Yeah. And, but this whole thing about horizontal income, right? This idea that you're making money while laying down. <laughs> yes. Yes, <laughs> I love it. it. it the, the rent checks are coming in. You're clipping those coupons and you could be on your mountain bike and, and, and there's checks coming in. That's right. It's, and, and any number of places you can do it, whether it's, you know, I'm fascinated by how people do it in areas like real estate. And, you know, in some ways it was, I think Michael and I both recognize we're going to be software entrepreneurs that, that, that is sort of where our network is and so forth. But the idea of doing something of meaning and creating value in the consumer space, that, that was interesting. Let's do it different there. Uh, yeah. And that's to your exact point. Yeah, it can be done lots of different ways, but. And so if I go back to this CEO transition thing, just to put a bow on it. So obviously you've done the opposite at Strava as to what you did at Kana in terms of you're no longer CEO of Strava, but you're still actively engaged in the business. Um, And so what have you learned in this CEO transition as you've stayed on? And, you know, again, what advice would you give to a, a, a founder CEO going through a similar thing where they're wanting to transition? but also wanting to stay on and, and create a partnership with this new CEO. Yeah. So a uh, couple of things come to mind. One was just the process we went through to even bring James onto the team. So uh, as I mentioned, sort of if, if, if Kana was hyperspeed, this one probably took too long. Uh, but nonetheless, we were, we were thoughtful and, and patient about it. It was a 15 month process from the time that we actually signed with a search partner, uh, and and really began our search and people think that that was this long time but in fact there was there were stages we went through it took us six months to as a as a board and as a team to really meet enough people to even define who would make sense in this organization what what kind of background do we want and so then there was probably another you know about a year of interviewing enough people to really get a sense of culturally is this someone who's going to understand because while they're going to come in and have tremendous impact on the culture, a 10 year old company is what it is. It's like, it's, it's, that's very hard to affect that kind of change. And so we needed someone who could appreciate 
what Strava had become and how to fit into that and then accelerate opportunities and, and change uh, some areas that we all knew uh, required some change. So that's, that's one is that we just, we took the time and, and we, we built a model where that was possible. You know, I was, I had made a very personal decision to step aside largely because of just family dynamics and a single dad uh, for Jake and Charlie. And, and, you know, just, I want, I, I was really struggling Christopher with how to be available in two places. Um, I live about an hour from our office uh, in San Francisco where the headquarters is. And I just, you know, you talked earlier about that period in your life where you go a few weeks without working out. But one of the great ironies was here I was the CEO of Strava. And the one thing that I was sacrificing all the time was any kind of working out because I really felt like I had to be there for the, the team and the company. The guy creating the category dominating bike app never gets on his bike, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, it was just a physical impossibility. I was, I was either in the car commuting back and forth or I was at the office or I was where I knew I needed to be, which was with my two boys. And so that needed to change. Uh, we also saw opportunities. Pause you there for a sec, Mark. And look, if I'm yeah. getting per too personal, kick me under the table by all means. Sure. But I think the topic you're on here about going through, I assume you went through a divorce, right? I did. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've always, uh, let me say it this way, not appreciated this, this sort of thing about work-life balance because it, it sort of creates this context that your work is here and your life is here and they're somehow different when in point of fact, of course, your life is your life and there's, there's use cases of Mark, but it's all Mark. And so, you know, you very rarely hear an entrepreneur like yourself talk about going through a divorce transition, particularly, and then coming out the other side, being a single dad and trying to build, you know, you've built an incredibly special company in Strava. And so could you share with me, would you mind, Mark, a little bit about like going through all that change on both personally and professionally at the same time? And you're, I know you have a huge commitment to being a dad and like, how does all that play out in your head and how, how do you manage all that? Sure. You know, Christopher, so I, I referred to that dark period where you and I probably under different circumstances would have stayed in touch and, and so forth. And uh, there, again, for better or worse, there were, uh, there was this dark cloud that hung over my family in the early 2000s. Uh, I had my bicycle accident. What I hadn't referred to was the fact that before that, a year earlier, Jake and Charlie were born, but they were twins born prematurely with all kinds of, you know, classic premature issues. Uh, and unfortunately, probably the worst one was Lisa's health at the time um, uh, was, was really challenged. She, she had a bunch of health problems. Uh, and so we kind of had this family that was in and out of Stanford Medical Center and so forth. And uh, that took its toll on us as a family. So again, if there's Here's the good news on the other side. So she and I are the best of friends. Uh, we've raised these boys together uh, now for the last 18 years. We've been divorced for, gosh, 14 of those 18 years. Uh, we've learned a lot about her health. It's, you know, I, uh, I'll protect her privacy, but it's just, it's, it's chronic. It's, it's something that we've learned how to deal with. And, and she's done a wonderful job of sort of fighting through that. And, uh, but because of that, her health has required me to be a, uh, a present dad, to be in, in something that I wanted and I was fortunate to grow up with. Uh, and so that's the first thing is that she and I were always able to put Jake and Charlie first. We were able to always explain to them and to ourselves, hey, we're a family. 
uh, just happened to be constructed a little bit differently. And we have these two homes and we, we live very close to each other. All those things that you kind of hear in a perfect world that can happen in a divorce, we pulled it off. And, and I give tremendous kudos to Lisa because um, uh, she, again, the two of us sort of figured out how to do that. But that took time. I mean, as you, so when I refer to that period from 2000 to about 2006, we just had to get our health back. We had to, to stabilize and, and I had to focus there. So there wasn't balance. Um, about the best I could do was to sit on these crazy boards. Uh, I mean, I was on a public company board in South Korea and startups around here. And I kind of keep my finger on the pulse of what was going on. But I was, I was very focused on just how to, how to stabilize our family structure. Um, but it did. It got to a place where by that 2007, 2008 timeframe, I was itching. To, to, to start another business with Michael and to, uh, you know, in some ways to demonstrate to the boys that, you know, work is good and, and you got to challenge yourself. And, you know, you don't want to, just because you might have the means to sit around and surf all day long, that's, that's not necessarily a healthy way to, to live a life. And uh, it's, it's, you know, if I fast forward, I think that I, I could, we could walk you through crazy. Michael and I, had to trade off the CEO role at Strava three different times. When we started it, I ran it uh, from 2008 to 2010 because it was on the West Coast. It was, it was going to be a software company. I'd run Kana before. Michael was on the East Coast at the time. So it made total sense. But frankly, Lisa's health deteriorated in 2009, 2010 to the point where I had to, to step aside. And I was really thankful that Michael took over and he ran it and did an amazing job for the next four years. Until, life's irony, his wife Anna became ill with cancer for the third time. And so in early 2014, tag, you know, I'm it. I said, Michael, I got this. Uh, I'll, I'm in a good place. I need you to focus on your family and, and Anna. And so he stepped aside. And I, I ran it, but I ran it with a caveat to the board, which was, hey, just remember, my situation is always precarious. Uh, and I've always got to put Jake and Charlie in and family first. Um, and they agreed to that. And I had an amazing time for three and a half, almost four years. Um, but zero regret when we brought James on board, that was the right thing for the company and, and for myself. You know, well, first of all, thanks for sharing that Mark. It's, it's, it's a very powerful set of things you just said there. And I, I, not that you don't have plenty of things to do, but you should write a fucking book about that, brother. Because, you know, I, I just hate this, this sort of work's work and personal's personal and all this sort of stuff. We're human beings. And you very rarely hear a multi-time successful entrepreneur like yourself get real about, hey, listen, I have this life. I have a complete life. And I have some amazing things in my life. You've had insane success as an entrepreneur and as a, as a company builder. And I consider you a category designer. Um, and you have this huge commitment to being a dad. And you've had huge you know, challenges with your own <laughs> physical life and, and, your, and, and your wife and like all of it, right? And it's so easy for people on the outside to look at a Mark Ganey and go, oh, well, you know, that guy's just fucking awesome and I suck. And that's the problem, right? Mark's, Mark's got some skill that I don't have right next to his spleen. He has this organ called like awesome entrepreneur, super adventure man guy. And like, I'm just a regular dude. And, and, you know, for you to get real and talk about, Hey, listen, 
you know, shit goes down in life, right? And, and you got to step up and your partnership with Michael and being able to pass the puck back and forth. And these are very real things. And yet things that you almost never hear in the, um, you know, Fortune magazine glamour, you know, profile piece, right? Well, I, I appreciate that, Christopher. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. It's, it is, uh, it's only when you get to sit down with, uh, you know, friends, mentors, and so forth with a beer that you, you realize that what looked like up and to the right and so simple and so fast couldn't be farther from the truth. There were, you know, 17 different sort of unexpected hurdles and obstacles. And, um, I, I, you know, I used to say back in the, this is, this is going to date myself again, but in those early two thousands, when things were dark, that the line that was classic for me was look, at least I'm not in Baghdad. Uh, and that's, I think we just, you know, the, the, the phrase that, that often gets referred to inside Strava and used to even in Kana was the three P's. You got to have patience. You got to have persistence, but you also have to have perspective. Uh, I think that that's the problem that, that happens so much is that we, we just lose perspective uh, in our sort of, you know, battle to go to build the next category killing uh, opportunity or to, you yeah. know, to sort of create that wealth for everybody who's involved and so forth. Like you just, you got to maintain perspective. And that's, if I've got one skill that I can bring to the table, it's, it's, it's probably that. It's like, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at things in a pretty balanced way, and there's always somebody who's got it way better than I do, but there's also somebody who also has it much worse than I do. And, well, and this is also that. why this comparison game is 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 crazy, right? It's a hole I think we can all fall into. It's certainly one that I have fallen into, and it's an easy stick to beat yourself with if you feel like in whatever dom- domain, whether it's an athletic domain, whether it's a business domain or a family domain, whatever it is where you, you can say, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And then you compare yourself to others and you're like, why is so-and-so here and I'm fucking over here and I can't even see where they are. And, and all that we can, I know certainly I've gotten in times uh, wrapped up in that stuff. Um, and, and it really is a rat hole, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's, 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 you just ha- you have to have faith that what you think you're seeing from that person who's just got it amazingly good, it that is a false premise. That is that's what's the I forget who wrote, but that the um, the metaphor, the image I always have in my mind is that the beautiful little cottage that's off in the woods, and you you see the smoke coming out of it. And, you know, the first impression is, oh, it must you know it must be the perfect family that lives there. And, it's like you actually don't want to know what's going on behind that door and why there's smoke coming out of the chimney. It's it's just, yeah. everybody's got a hardship. Everybody's got some challenge, and um, yeah, let's it it comes back to then. Well, then let's work together on this stuff. And that's there's that's, a martial arts mantra to get back to your humility point earlier that says you will either be humble in life or humbled by life. Yeah, that's perfect. And so just maybe sort of put a bow on the, this new CEO or newer CEO transition over the last couple of years, how, how you've been able to find a role for yourself and Michael uh, with the new CEO in a way that was different than what went down at Kana where, where you last yeah. had one board meeting. So the phrase I would use here is that uh, just acknowledge that change is constant. So, and what I mean by that in terms of this uh, situation you know, James and I had one relationship when he first came on board. 
it was very sort of transitional. He and I were attached at the hip. There was a three to six month process where he did a masterful job of coming in and, and observing. Uh, and, you know, I continued to be there and be engaged in staff meetings and so forth. And there was just a, there was a natural period where a lot of interaction. There was then a period where I stepped way back. Uh, you know, no reason to have a looming shadow and to allow him to really begin to affect change. And James needed to build his own team. He needed to, um, there were some things around what we refer to as velocity that we all wanted to see change. You know, how could we increase sort of uh, some of the speed at which we were bringing software to market and, you know, different things that we knew we, we wanted to improve. And so there was a period there where I don't want to say I disappeared, but just let, let him do his thing. Yeah, big step back. And then, um, and I think we've moved into this next chapter uh, where trying to understand uh, what a, I hesitate, we, we often call it a partnership between the three of us. I, I sometimes, I'm sort of saying this for the first time in a podcast, I haven't really talked to James about this, but I worry about that word because I don't know that we have to be partners. Uh, we're, not, we're not equal in this process. That's, that's never the intent. But just a healthy working relationship where, where can we all be uh, having the most positive influence, you know, affecting value in the, in the most positive way. And so that's, that's, it, it just evolves. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Where are we today? Um, I would put sort of my responsibilities in two basic categories. There is a very specific board responsibility that I take much more seriously today than I frankly even used to. I think that good functional. Are, are, board, you, are you, obviously you're on the board. Are you the chair as well? Or who, who, how does that yeah. work? Yeah. I am the chair today. Um, you know, we've, we've, because we historically the chair and CEO were the same thing. I think we're still learning sort of how that should operate. Um, so I think of myself as just one of the independent directors, but we want to, we want a highly functioning board. We want to make sure that we're, um, that we're helping lead the company in the way that it should. So I do take that job seriously. And that's, that's an area I put more time into, uh, frankly, recently than I have in the past. Um, and why do you think um, sort of being super thoughtful about your board is something you're more focused on today than you were, you know, back in maybe the Kana days? Uh, well, probably the simple fact that I can, there's two things. On the negative side, I can see that a board that's not informed and that, and that, uh, that board at the end of the day carries a lot of responsibility and, and can frankly, have significant impact, both positive and negative. But if they're not informed and they're not, you know, the communication cycles aren't, aren't there in an effective way, they can just wreak havoc. Um, and so I, I, and I saw a little bit of that at, at Kana, some of the dysfunction that can happen very quickly. Um, well, and, and so I think interesting thing, I don't know if you've had this experience. Um, I don't want to say which company, but a company that I was involved with, um, heading into a board meeting and I sort of pulled the CEO, uh, uh, the CFO, excuse me, aside before the board meeting, I knew it was an important board meeting. And I said to him, we'll just call him Jimmy said, Hey Jimmy, you know, what do you think is the purpose of this board meeting? And he said, the purpose of this board meeting is to get it over with. Yeah. And he said, look, uh, we, we need, we have some shit to get done. We don't need to board in a way. And so uh, they're, they're like mushrooms, feed them shit and keep them in the dark and let's get this done. And I remember thinking, 
and, and this guy was, you know, uh, I, this was earlier in my career. This guy was much more senior than me. And, but I, I, I just remember thinking, Jimmy, that's bullshit. There's something wrong in this company if that's the CFO's attitude towards the board. But there are companies who have that attitude, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think even uh, if I'm honest, I, I know that at Strava, we've had periods of time where the management team feels like, uh, here we go. We got, we got to get through this. And, and probably the most important meeting didn't take place during the, the board session. It took place afterwards over beers amongst the management team where they all, you know, half the time was spent just complaining about it. And the half the time was, okay, did we get anything out of that? That, that to me is a, that, that falls on the board. First off, I, I, that's not pointing fingers. That's, that's the board problem right there. If we're not sort of, uh, operating in a way and partnering in a way with the executive team so that we have a one plus one equals three phenomenon. I, you know, I may still be, if you're learning something about me, Christopher, I'm, I'm an optimist at heart. So I'm, you know, I'm always going to, you know, there's a way to do this. And I'm not saying we've accomplished this yet at Strava, but in terms of what I feel is an important role I can play today, we've got tremendous talent on the board who cares deeply about the success of this business. I don't see politics there. I don't see people. Um, we've been very careful how we've crafted this board. We do not have a you know, simple little example. There's no young VC who is desperate to sort of make their career uh, and you know needs to see a, a liquidity event anytime in the near future. This is a very group of seasoned folks, both executives and investors, who who fully understand what the vision is uh, to go build this lasting brand. And so, and, and you, I mean, your VCs, and this is actually a sort of a side topic I wanted to touch on with you. You have some legendary VCs. You have Sequoia in the company. Is Mike Moritz on your board? No, no, no he's involved. He's involved uh, though. Yeah, no, it was, a, it was a great conversation with him. I, I'm convinced he, he figured out long ago that he can be far more um, influential uh, if he's not sitting in the board at this point, but he's earned his dues. He doesn't have to. You know, that's what I've found in my career, having served on a bunch of boards. I haven't been on a board of a company in well over a decade because what I got to was A, uh, a lot of board meetings are stupid. B, they are very sort of financial and legal oriented. So they end up being a bunch of nose picking conversations as far as I'm concerned on a lot of things. But more importantly than that, I wanted to be on the side of the, the founding team, the leadership team, and the sort of fiduciary part of I have influence over hiring and firing the CEO and influence over, you know, to some degree, the executive team. I didn't want that because I wanted to be the guy that you as the founder or co-founder wanted to call and have that real conversation over beers yeah. with. In, so, you know, while I sometimes go to board meetings as an as a as advisor and an observer, I, you know, and I'm not saying I'd never be on a board again, but I have found it for me personally more powerful not being on the board. Yeah, I, I, it's an astute observation. It's and in some ways I think it's a perfect segue because that's in some ways I see my role today. If done successfully, I'm bridging exactly what you're describing. That uh, if done right, I want to be in a place where. I can have impact to the team in between those board sessions. Uh, there's a responsibility I have to make sure we have a high functioning group there that can contribute in a meaningful way to the success of, of Strava at uh, the board level. But where I really want to spend my time is 
how can I, again, yeah, how do I be a partner to James and to the team? And, you know, it's been, it's been fun. I, I'll give you simple examples. Uh, about uh, two, three weeks ago, you know, they shipped me down to Brazil for about a week. Uh, there was a speaking engagement, but it was a great opportunity for us to connect. It's our second largest country today after the United States. It's a fascinating place to understand sort of athletics and uh, just the, the social dynamics and cultural dynamics around sports. And uh, so I, I go do that and I take copious notes and I come back and I start sharing with the marketing team and, and the product team and with James to, you know, think through, hey, these are observations I'm making. But then I have to recognize that I don't have direct reports and any, uh, any impact I'm going to have has got to be collaborative. It's, it's, it has to be collegial because uh, the role that I now play is, is one of, of advisor. Well, and I want to go back to something you said a little while ago with James and this concept of partnership. You, you made the statement, you're not equal. What do you mean by that, Mark? Well, I guess what I mean is I understand having, for both Michael and I, we've both been in that CEO seat and understand sort of the, uh, both the, the pressures, the responsibilities, the, the, uh, just the weight of that seat. It's a very lonely uh, place to often sort of reside. And, and having been there, recognize just the simple fact that I can get up and, you know, after I finish this talk with you, I, I can go for a run for an hour. But when I was in the CEO seat, that just wasn't, that wasn't a possibility. More than likely, there were 17 other meetings that were already getting sort of put on my calendar by our one, you know, amazing person named Hera. So one is just, there's just not an equality there. I, I fully recognize sort of the constant noise that he's having to manage through. And, and often it's not the big strategic questions that ironically I can now think a lot about, but in his daily seat, that's not where he's, he's got personnel challenges and recruiting challenges. And, and why aren't the lights working in the bathrooms downstairs? And it just, there's just this constant cacophony of, of, of issues that, that he mentioned. That's the first place. What I just don't, it's just not a fair comparison to, to what we're expecting of him. Michael's often referred to how do we teach James to be very comfortable with, he's in the driver's seat, but it's a minivan and Michael and I are in the back seat and occasionally like, you know, tapping him on the shoulder and let's go this way or let's go that way. And, and you guys are like playing video games and throwing goldfish at his head and stuff. Yeah. 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 And, and so we had to get him comfortable that we're going to be in the van and uh, we don't want to go anywhere. And, and I think we've had to, you know, candidly speaking, even in recent weeks, we've had some really good, but candid conversations around, Hey, what's working and what's not working. And that'd be the other piece of advice I'd leave for anybody. It's like, this works. If you're willing to communicate, you're willing to be uh, very open about, hey, this bothered me not. You can't let stuff fester. Uh, and I'm curious if you've gone through this sort of evolution in thinking that I've gone through. And it's sort of one of the things that I really wish I had understood earlier, which is, you know, as I've gone from entrepreneur to executive to board member to advisor, investor, and hopefully now, you know, more of a coach and partner. Uh, one of the big ahas I've had, particularly with the chief executive officer, but it's true with all of the executives, but very much so even more with the CEO. I think, Mark, job number one for me is never be a problem. That's, that's actually, you know, because I, I get brought on to help with category design and marketing and designing and dominating categories and kicking everybody's ass and all this 
sort of fun, strategic, aggressive. And, you know, of course, I have ideas about how to do that and, and, and hopes and expectations and desires and dreams for the company and all these things that you would expect. But I've realized that job number one, my, I am here to make life meaningfully different for the CEO and therefore company. The whole thing is predicated on my relationship with the CEO. If that doesn't work, the whole thing goes up in smoke. And inside of that, my job is to never be a problem. Now, it doesn't mean I can't shove my foot up that CEO's ass. And God knows I've put my foot up a lot of CEO's asses. But if I could go back, uh, I would, even when being sort of, uh, let me call it, um, arguing aggressively with a CEO, as I've done many, <laughs> many times, yeah. I would do it differently, not in all cases, but in, in some cases. And, you know, I think about the companies that I work with today. And when I think they are not on track with what we're, quote unquote, supposed to be doing, uh, you know, I'm a lot more, um, to your point, patient. And I have a lot more perspective. And I ease up a little and just trust the CEO. Because to your point, we're not all equal. The aha is, hey, fuck, I'm not the CEO. I'm not making this decision. I got involved with this person because I think they're smart and have good judgment. And even if things aren't going the way I think they should, or even if this CEO is making some decisions that I don't think we should have made, none of that's my fucking job, you dumbass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think uh, it's a great takeaway for me this morning. Uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm learning as you and I are talking. I really appreciate it, Christopher, because I think that you've, You've hit on something. Michael and I often spend time trying to figure out, um, we refer to them as the guardrails. Where, where are the areas where as, as founders here and just you know, believe deeply in the future of the business, where the, we often refer to the fact that 99.9% .9 of Strava is uh, no sacred cows. Like go, morph, evolve, change, strategy, and so forth. And where's that 0.1% where, we're just, hey, are we inside the boundaries? And the thankful thing is, long before even James came, we had something called the ABC. So we had at Strava, it's, it's, it's just something that works really well for us. It's, it's a set of core values that sort of evolved and, and surfaced after a couple of years of being in existence. We call them the ABCs because there's an A, a B, and three Cs. It's authenticity, it's balance, and then it's craftsmanship, it's camaraderie, and it's commitment. And those five words, those five principles, those are our guardrails. And so to your point, how do I not create problems? How do I stay inside the guardrails? And yet at the same time, sort of just ensure that as an organization, we're, we're living by those mantras. That's the, that's the art of what we're trying to do. Uh, yeah. But your point is very well taken. I, well, you know, do no I'll, harm. Give you, I'll give you a very specific from my life right now. So, you know, I'm only working with a few companies, um, but uh, the comp companies that I love and that are, you know, I'm really enjoying being a part of. Anyway, in one particular case, this has played out over the last couple of weeks, there's a big category decision we have to make. And this company, like a lot of tech companies, is very analytical, you know, super high IQ, super analytical. Well, the, the, you know the plus side of that, you get very smart thinking. The downside of that, of course, is it can take some time and there can be a little getting caught up on our own shorts on stuff, right? Yeah. So anyway, long story longer, we are at this critical decision point on what to name the category. And um, 
the company has has sweated every single word, right? At like a level that I find like a jackhammer in the head, right? Because they're bottom-up thinkers, I'm a top-down thinker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so we finally got everybody on the same fucking page and there's sort of one last element of it that people are having Ajita about. And so I had a, a, my regular call with the marketing team yesterday and they need to get the CEO over the line on this one last piece. And they're, and they're having a hard time. And so the CMO said to me, look, can you just please get a hold of Jimmy, the CEO, and, and help us get him over the line on this, right? So I sent Jimmy a text last night, said, hey, can I get 10 minutes with you in the next two or three days? Again, again being very gentle. In the past, this, everything would be urgent, right? right I don't want right, to be a problem. Right. Turns out he's actually on vacation. Anyway, uh, so I send this very gentle text and he says, yeah, absolutely. He's going to talk to me from vacation today. And in the past, you know, 10 years ago, uh, whether I realized it or not, there would have been a, an element of, hey, the building's on fire and we need to fucking do this fast. And there would have been a bit of a, if I totally brutally candid with you, a little bit of righteousness on my part. Like, for fuck's sakes, can't you tell this is the right answer? Like just, you know, there would have been, let me say it this way, maybe an edge to the conversation that I'm about to have with Jimmy. And I'm not going to do any of that shit when I talk to him today. All I'm going to say is, hey, listen, we're at this place. The marketing team feels really strongly about this. And we just need your decision and we'd love your support. And he's going to say whatever he's going to say. He's going to decide whatever he's going to decide. I hope he makes what I believe is the right decision, which I'm trying to represent to the marketing team. So I feel like I'm doing my job in representing their thinking to him and helping him get over the line. But to your point on it's not equal, hey, I'm not confused who the guy is who works 80 hours a week running a massive, in this case, public company. Uh, Like what I'm doing and what he's doing. And so, you know what, if I can't get them there, then I can't get them there. And I'm not going to behave like a self-righteous, insubordinate child (laughs) if he makes the quote unquote wrong decision, right? I'm not going to love it. His marketing team will be disappointed. But at the end of the day, my job is to make the company different. My job is to support him. And and that's what we're going to do. And he's going to decide because he's the fucking CEO and I'm not. And I just wish I had understood that, you know, 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> Christopher, I had to tell you right now, I will come back or we will have beers at some point. You have no idea how timely this conversation is for me. And, and uh, it's, uh, your words are, they're being heard loud and clear. Uh, and it, it's, again, not to sort of, not to leave you in suspense, sort of what, what is he referring to, but uh, you're spot on. It's, it's understanding, uh, there's, there's a conversation that has to take place. So you have to talk to Jimmy. You, you, you know that that's important for the sake of the marketing team. And I thought you were going to also go down the path of, you know, the thing that drives me nuts sometimes as, as an entrepreneur is, uh, and particularly here in Silicon Valley, where we're really good at going deep into the analytics uh, and, and being data-driven at Strava. But come on, there's intuition as well. It's really important. It's like at some point, it's just what is your gut saying and can we you, you know when you're when it's right and uh, that's i think the hard thing for me personally is that much of my personal success and and the businesses 
let's face it, any sort of early stage business, it's it's 90% intuition. You 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 don't have data to work with. It's only as the company gets larger and there's and there's more business functions and and you you now have more customers and you know everything else that you begin to have the data. So by definition, I know that I'm driven sort of by intuition and feel and so forth and, and how to balance that. But I I'm hearing you loud and clear and that, that concept of uh, uh, how how to you know, it is going back to that partnership, how to be an advisor that recognizes his place is it's an important thing to remember. It's and very hard to, to hold on to. Uh, it, it's, it, it was a struggle for me for a long time. It still is sometimes, but for the most part, I think I've matured out of it. And I go back to a learning years ago. We, well, years ago, when I was still at Mercury, we hired Madeline Albright to keynote one of our user big yeah. conferences. And regardless of your politics, I think you've got to admire this woman. Mm-hmm. You know, first female secretary of state in American history. And she, again, whether you agree with policies or don't agree with policies, I think it's hard not to agree with. She represented our country in an incredibly honorable way and is a very powerful woman and was a very powerful secretary of state. Anyway, all that said, um, when I met her, the thing that I found most remarkable, Mark, is that in her prior life, she had what I think a lot of people would call a tremendous amount of positional power. Mm. And when I met her, she was speaking and writing and I think doing some advising, if I remember correctly and so forth. But she, she had nowhere near, you know, there are very few jobs in the world that have more power, positional power than right. Secretary of the State of the United States, right? Right. And, and what I realized is, for the most part, her source of quote-unquote power today was her presence, her ability to communicate and interact, the quality of, of her ideas and her approaches with people. So she just, her position, her power came from who she was and her ability to help people. Nobody had to do what she said because she didn't run the State Department anymore. Yeah. And ever since then, it's been a long time now, um, I have been, I've, played with this idea. And, and, and while positional power is cool, being a CEO or you know, having a big budget and a lot of direct reports and all that stuff, um, there's something, if I could say it this way, more powerful when the position that you hold holds no power and you, the only quote unquote power you have is the power of your intellect, the power of your ability to communicate and collaborate the power of your ability to think, uh, the power of your ability to coach and support. Um, and so I think that's a much more interesting area to grow and to, to work on as a human being, at least for me personally, than positional power. But I, I'd be curious to see your thoughts. Uh, no, I, it's it, music to my ears. It's, what's going through my head is um, a lesson that I, I was fortunate to get again very early in my career, and it was it was frankly when I started building Kata. And people often say, you know, what what gave you the courage to to go and start your own business? What made you think that you could go and do that? And uh, it was the simple fact that what I was able to see early on was that I'm not good at any of these roles that I actually need to hire to build a great team. Like I I have, I have no sales experience. My sales team used to say. 
Mark, we're going to bring you in. We need you in there for the first two minutes because you can pitch a vision better than anybody, but we need to get you out because you're going to give the software for free. You, you don't know how to ask for a check. And they were right. I was horrible at that. Uh, marketing team, they did not want me involved. I, you know, too wordy. Uh, uh, engineering, you don't want me touching code. I, my graduate, my degree is in art history. Uh, I've never written a piece of code in my life. Uh, one of the great ironies of running software code. So, but I knew that. Christopher, I, I, what I saw was that I can't do any of that stuff. And what I found, both being here in this valley and so was that, but I can go talk to people who, who are the experts in these fields. I can get them and maybe I can get them to work for me directly, but there's some relationship that I can have and there's, there's something. And so seeing that early and recognizing even now 25, 30 years later, that that hasn't changed. I, I, I still... You know, you don't want me in selling enterprise software and, and or, or even trying to sell the kind of business model. Uh, having that acknowledgement uh, and recognizing that, therefore, maybe it's not the intellect, but sort of the, um, the simple recognition that it takes this team effort. It takes this, I actually like to refer to it as something beyond teamwork. It takes a certain esprit de corps. It takes that that camaraderie and that trust uh, and to recognize that you're not the best at this. And so let's go find it and bring it in. And then it makes it very easy to think about how to have conversations with folks. And I think what you're describing, the Madeleine Albright phenomenon of she, she then becomes that trusted advisor, that person that you do want to listen to. Yes. Yes. So I've been trying to be Madeleine Albright ever since I met her. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. Now, I'm curious, could you give me a bit of a uh, snapshot of where Strava is today, you know, about 10 years in? Sure. Yeah. Uh, fascinating business. It's, so we've got, we've got about 200 people who work at a company. So it's still, you know, I'd call it still intimate, still small. There's, there's six offices around the globe, but really the two main places we operate out of are here in the States, San Francisco and Denver. Uh, we're supporting a, a global community of athletes. So we've got between 40 and 50 million athletes worldwide. We had a million athletes every month. Um, we started in cycling. Uh, it's, it's fun. I, I love, Christopher, your, your thoughts around niche down and so forth. We, we, we picked one very specific group, the, the, what we referred to as the mammal, uh, M-A-M-I-L, middle-aged men in Lycra. That was our target audience uh, early on. It was not the vision for the company. The vision was always to support this global community of athletes across a broad range of sports and, and you know, but levels. But you niche down on middle-aged cyclists. Middle-aged cyclists. Male you know, cyclists. They, yeah, well, that's, that, unfortunately, that is what a cyclist is on the road today. It's, it's still very much, a, you know, it's... It's a, a 40 to 65-year-old dude on the road? Yeah, that's right. Now, you know, I got it. This is a side note, of course, but... I believe that that dude, that manimal, has now surpassed the golf version of that dude as the worst dressed, quote, athlete. Right? They're, 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 <laughs> look, I used to think that sort of these plus or minus 50 year old dudes wearing these outfits that looked like they were sort of um, Easter outfits designed by their mother for five year olds, you know, these crazy colors and shit, that golfers were the worst dressed. But a 60-year-old dude wearing skin-tight pants and a, like, you know, bright orange shirt or whatever. <laughs> so, you're, you're right. But here's the good news. The good news is they're easy to spot. And so, if you're looking for a potential customer and you're, or you're trying to do some research, 
I've got a good friend of mine who uh, we call it the Starbucks phenomenon, where if you walk into Starbucks and you're trying to find your core audience, at least in my case, I can look over in the corner and I can quickly identify the four dudes you're describing. See those dudes in the horribly tight pants? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Way too much Lycra. Uh, it's, uh, and that, look, it worked great for us. But if you fast forward to today, uh, it's, boy, Strava's got, we've got, we have more runners than we do cyclists for all intents and purposes. We, we cater to 31 different sports. Um, we've got give a, a couple of the big ones, obviously cycling, running, what are, what are some of the other bigger ones? You know, cycling and running are the, are the, the big endurance sports are the things that we support really, really well. So the cycling, running, swimming, triathlon, um, but it's fun. You know, if, uh, this past winter, we saw a huge explosion and people just putting their, their, their days on the slopes on Strava. Uh, so whether they're skiing, um, I, I will hit the water and I'll put my surf session on. Um, it's, it's not that you're, you're analyzing it and you're digging into all these specific details around wave height and, you know, time like that. You're just memorializing the fact that you spent a couple hours with friends on the water and, uh, you know, you capture a good photo and you put that in as part of Strava. And that's really the way Strava's evolved. It's, it's really become the home for your athletic life. It's that one place where you can, you can be very much a private citizen on Strava. You can just have it for your own single user mindset and use it to sort of be your, your digital log. Or you can do what the vast majority of folks do, which is to connect with their, their, their tribe, their, that small group of friends and foes that they love to compete with and trash talk with and you know, just have fun. Uh, and support and that's that's the beauty of Strava. So it's it's it is that place where we're seeing connections happen every day. Our mission is to motivate. Our mission is to, as I talked to you, we you know, Michael and I when we launched this thing, we were two guys in our early forties who recognized the importance of working out, but found that life got in the way. And we needed something that would keep us motivated to get out there. And so that's even now ten years later, it's how do we continue to build the tools and and services that motivate individuals, whether that's through competition or, you know, personal improvement, sort of self-improvement, the sky's the limit. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, I, I just that's love it. And, and the other thing, you know, I love that you sort of, I'm not sure what the right Venn diagram would be to kind of explain it. Maybe you'll tell me, but like on one hand for the super competitive uh athlete, you know, I can track my progress and my times and distances and da, 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 da. And I think all of us, even weekend warrior types like myself, that's always fun. You know, it's fun to say, oh, well, you know, we did X miles or we covered whatever it is and to sort of track your progress over time. That, that's cool. But you've also gamified this thing. And obviously professionals need to track this stuff super carefully. But to your point as weekend warriors, you know, it's fun to sort of go, hey, uh, Nina Nonner boys, I was out there this weekend and I did this and I see you guys who haven't done shit or, you know, whatever. Like there's, there's uh, most of us who are involved with, you know, a group of friends, a quote unquote tribe doing a physical activity. Um, there's a little ribbing that goes on, right? There is. There, and so you've no also gamified some of that playfulness, if I could, you know, but tell me, tell me how you think about that sort of dynamic as opposed to just the sort of the, how many, how many miles did I grind out dynamic? Yeah, no, you're right. That there's, there's that level of data analytics that for some subset of our population, they can never have enough. And in fact, there's, there's other products out there that we can refer them to if they, you know, depending on how deep they want to go. 
but our mission, if it's about motivation, is to just understand the different ways in which people are motivated. And some of it is the trash talk, and or you know, even on a positive side. So we we track sort of the the number of kudos that someone gives. You know, it's the equivalent of a virtual high five, and we can see. Christopher, it's really fascinating. We can see sort of the impact that receiving kudos has on, on somebody's behavior. We can watch that as their, as their network grows, as people are sort of monitoring your workouts and, and beginning to give you kudos, we can see that that just accelerates someone's ability to get out and, and, and work out another day and another day. Uh, we see things, you know, we added photos into Strava a number of years ago. In part, it was sort of funny. In part, it was to just remind people that not every workout should be a race uh, and that occasionally you need to stop and enjoy that sunrise or that sunset or the mud that you just, you know, get to ride through. Um, or, hey, look, also, dudes, there's a pretty flower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it was really – so it became a, a, a means, a tool in which we could – help people just uh, find other, other sources of motivation. Uh, something as simple as the title of an activity. Uh, you wouldn't believe how much time I spend while I'm out on my run or on my ride thinking about what's the title going to be of this? What, what's happened during this particular ride? And, but I can guarantee you that people spend much more attention you know, looking at, at my title and what it's referring to than they do any of the data around how fast or how far I went. And, and sometimes I'm snarky, sometimes I'm, um, I'm humbled, you know, it depends on, on the day and what I've gone through, but it's amazing the reaction that I get then from, from my team, from my, from the folks who are, who are supporting me on Strava. Yeah. How fun. Now, can you give me, are there any sort of metrics you're comfortable with? How many people you have on, you know, sort of give me some, uh, a snapshot of understanding the business and its growth and so forth. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, so we are a global organization. It's been really fun on that front. We, we we see uploads in 195 countries today. It's you know all seven continents. You can see we have folks right now who are tracking their uh, attempts to summit Everest on Strava. We have folks who are you know trying to get to the South Pole. So uh, that's that's fun from a geographic standpoint. Uh, we've got a wide range. You can go on Strava and you can watch uh, current Olympic athletes training for uh, for Tokyo. Uh, uh, with this coming summer, you're going to see probably, gosh, I think it's about 75% of all the riders in the Tour de France will be uploading daily on the Strava. So, you Holy know, on the one shit, hand, dude, you have you have two thirds of the the most elite cyclists in the world at the greatest race in the world. Oh yeah. Yeah, just and it's all organic. It's just it's just they have fun on it. It's you know these are not these these are not sponsored athletes by Strava. These are just they've they've adopted it as part of what makes their makes their riding more fun. Um, so we have that we have that portion of the population, and we've always said that we need to make sure that Strava meets the needs of some of the most demanding athletes in the world. But make no mistake, the vast majority of folks are frankly, like you and me. And, you know, you know, fortunate to get out, you know, maybe three, four times a week and recognize that it's important. And, and, you know, they're doing their 5k jog around their home and they're getting that virtual high five, that kudo from their friends when they upload it. Um, uh, that's, that's the real beauty of Strava is that that's what, that's what keeps us going. Yeah. And what does the future of Strava look like if we sort of fast forward? I don't know, you, you tell me what would be a good point in time, but maybe five years out, Something like that. Where where do you see things? So uh, 
here's where I'm really excited. The thing that we've been able to dramatically change from when we started to today that now opens up a new opportunity is that we have information available to us that, that wasn't there before. I mean, it took us eight years to see our first billion activities inside Strava. It took us another- you your first, did you say- Billion. Billion. So, so had, after eight, eight years- Eight years, we had one billion activities. And what, what do you months, define as an activity? Oh, anytime somebody uploads. So Strava's whole experience is predicated on you've gone for a ride, a run, a surf session, whatever it is, and you post that activity to Strava. Uh, we make it really easy for you to do that. It's not something you have to go in and type yeah. in. You just, you, you know, whether you're happens. wearing a Garmin device or your phone, it just happens. And so it took us eight years to see one billion activities get posted to Strava. It took us just 18 months to see our second billion. We'll see our third billion activity in less than a year. So just the, the flywheel that people refer to, Christopher, it's, it's, it's spinning now really well. And what that affords us is now an opportunity to take that information and really deliver a whole new service to our athletes, where historically we've been kind of the, the, the world's record uh, for athletic activities. What we can now do is really help people begin to discover and explore new opportunities. Uh, you know, the example I use is my trip to Brazil that I did just a few weeks ago. Where I get really excited is in the next couple of years, I should be able to land in Brazil and open up Strava. And between the fact that it knows what I like to do, and we also know where I'm located, it can open up a whole new world to me. It can tell me where I should go for a ride, who I should connect with, who trains like I do, what the clubs are that are in that area. If there's an upcoming event that I should participate in, there's a whole ecosystem in any given location. You know, one of the things I have a challenge with from time to time is Strava, of course, knows what level of athlete I'm at, right? It knows, correct. It knows how good of a mountain biker or hiker or skier or surfer I am. And one of the challenges I think a lot of us have is, you know, if I take up surfing as an example, you know, I learned to surf at, you know, uh, later in life in my late 30s, early 40s. And I am what I would call today an enthusiastic, strong, mediocre intermediate longboarder right no oh, yeah Sounds so familiar. If, it's, if it's an awesome right-handed point break on a longboard i'm your guy if it's yep. not oh, fuck right and so yeah. so the challenge i have of course is i know lots of surfers i live in santa cruz now and the vast majority of surfers i know are like a thousand x better than me and so like my next door neighbor is a great surfer I love the guy. I love his family, his kids. We spend time together. We've surfed together once because we go out together. He don't want to surf where I surf. He wants to surf where the real surfers surf, right? And so I got to believe that's a very powerful thing when you go to Brazil is, well, you know, are you going to be out there with the Tour de France guys on bikes? Probably not. But are there a bunch of guys plus or minus your age or your level who have a group that gets together Tuesdays and Thursdays that you know, ride terrain that you'd be comfortable with at a speed that you, you know, yes, but finding those people uh, can actually be a challenge. Oh yeah. Christopher, you, you, it's, it's funny. I'll give you a quick story uh, that hits this spot on. Uh, So we opened up our API a number of years ago uh, in a limited way, just to see, you know, how people would want to take advantage of the data. And you fast forward today, we have over 35,000 API partners. So we have lots of people doing creative things with this information. And 
we, uh, this goes back a couple of years oh, ago. Hold on. Can I just stop you there, Handsome? Did you say you have 35 API partners, 35,000 API partners? We do. Yeah. Now that, my friend, range, is called probably. building a fucking ecosystem. Wow. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, quietly, it's a really, it's a, like I said, it's a fascinating business. Uh, and it ranges from, I mean, those partners range from, obviously, key strategic partners that, again, the garments, the device companies of the world who really need to understand sort of how to work with us effectively to, to university settings, you know, to professors who are trying to understand, uh, you know, uh, uh, heart rate uh, anomalies uh, amongst athletes and, and endurance athletes. So it runs a spectrum. But one of the things that we did when we, when we launched this was we ran a competition to see how people could creatively think about, again, serving our athletes. And the winning app that came out of that was, for all intents and purposes, dating for athletes. It was taking the information we have, where, you, where do you live, and what kind of training do you do? And then if you're open to it, it would then suggest to you, hey, these are 10 people who live in your neighborhood, who train at roughly the same time and at the same pace that you do. Do you want to be connected? Uh, and so you're exactly right. That's we we're, we're hypersensitive to this notion of privacy and sort of, you know, again, as I mentioned to you earlier, if you want to be a single user player on Strava, you want everything locked down, by all means, we, we set that up. But if there are services we can offer that are value add, they can somehow increase your enjoyment of your sport, then let's, let's give them that opportunity. Yeah. And how, how do you see this thing playing out? I mean, you said you really want this to be a built to last company. Yeah, we're, we're so, uh, I think where we're all clear is that Strava, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm aggressive right now, there is an opportunity for a, a company to emerge as a leadership company in the 21st century around sports in the, in the digital era. Um, you know, I, I have great admiration for the Nikes of the world, but they are 20th century. They, they built their brands on needle and thread. You know, and they continue to make great products in terms of footwear and apparel. But in the same way that you've seen these other, these category dominators, you know, whether it's Amazon and retail or it's Netflix in the media space and so forth, we really do get excited about what, is, what does thought leadership look like in sports in the 21st century? And can we, can we play a thought leadership role there and, and yeah, just continue to build a, a lasting brand? And I think you have done, Mark, a masterful job at category design. Uh, you guys have really created a whole new space in the, if I, you tell me how to think about it, but the digital sports world that is a fascinating collection of things. If I were to draw the Venn diagram, right? You're a social network, but you're also a, a, a data and analytics platform personally um, and, and now you have, you know, shades of Instagram with the photos and, and, you know, shades of stories and you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, so there's a, it's a bit of a media company. It's a bit of a network. It's a, it's, it's absolutely a data analytics company for myself. It's a, it's a gamification platform and, you know, it's a lot of, you've taken little bits of various different things and put them to get together to create a whole new thing. And so I'm just curious, how do you think about, um, designing a category that you can then dominate? Well, I, I, it's gonna, it, I'm going to sound like I'm uh, your biggest cheerleader because I didn't recognize or I had never heard the phrase uh, niche down until um, 
until Christopher Frankel, you came back into my life here just a few weeks ago. And, uh, but I had to laugh because this is where uh, being lucky is so much better than being smart. You go all the way back to the Kana days. So I'm going to, I'm going to explain sort of the category dominance uh, through this process. So just give me two minutes. So you go back to Kana and you'll remember this. We were, we were about email response. We identified a very specific problem in the market, which was that companies were building websites for the first time, and all of a sudden, customer support was happening via email, and they were getting flooded with emails, and no one was, there was no infrastructure to, to, uh, to respond to that problem. So we built something that allowed for pretty easy, uh, you know, customer support teams could manage these, this inbound email. But we were immediately ridiculed uh, by venture firms and, frankly, other companies as being a feature, not a product. You are a niche. Uh, you work for one of those companies. I mean, Vantive and Scopus and Clarify were all like, what are these guys doing? This is like one of our basic little features, and somehow they think they're going to build a company. And we were, we were nervous. Uh, I mean, we had a lot of venture guys who turned us down and wouldn't invest because of it. But what we kept hearing was our customer saying, we really need this. How do we implement? How can we install? How can you integrate with these other systems we've already invested in? And so we, we took a very focused or niche down approach to an opportunity, but fully recognizing that if done well, we could be number one in something. And if you're number one in this tiny little market, it gives you voice. It allows you to then have a relationship with that customer where we then began to expand the whole definition of what became eCRM, right? This whole, there was already a category of CRM guys, but nobody was really doing it for the electronic age. And therefore the category began to emerge. And the next thing we knew, we weren't just a feature. We were, we were a company that was outgrowing our, our nearest competitor. Well, and if we, I could just interject, you guys are a shining example of that. And I think there's a lot of us in Silicon Valley and there are times in my career when I've made this mistake as well, where, hey, you're not a product, you're a feature and you're certainly not a category. But it turns out that that is often very wrong-headed and to Conish being a shining example, when you're trying to do a Siebel or a Vantive and you're trying to, or today a Salesforce, you know, they got a million points of light, right? Whereas yeah. when you pick this super narrow niche, you know, it's this whole thing of, I would rather matter to a thousand people than not matter to a hundred million people, right? And once you matter to a thousand people, well, then maybe you matter to 2,000 people and then you have something. And so by, there, I've seen so many legendary entrepreneurs pick off a quote unquote feature, turn it into a product and turn that product into a whole new category that sustains a multi-billion dollar market cap. And, you know, you've, you lived through that. Bingo. It, it's just... It's, and, and what we did, if there's one play that we took from our, from our enterprise world and applied to Strava and the consumer world, it was this one. It was, we always, I refer to, I remind entrepreneurs, don't confuse go-to-market with vision. So Michael and I have a business plan that said, boy, if we're successful, we would love to support a global community of athletes. Okay, now what are we going to go build? Well, you know, these cyclists are these cyclists are actually investing a lot of money in these very expensive little computers that they're putting on their handlebars, but they're kind of treating it like a Timex Ironman. They're just like their start, their stop. There's all this great data. Can we focus in on the needs of this cycling community, see if we can do something interesting with that data? And what's, if we're successful, maybe we can then expand vertically. In fact, we used to kind of take the Nike playbook. Let's, let's be really good in that one vertical sports niche. and then 
if successful, we then have the, you have to, you have to earn credibility, right? You have to earn the right to then sort of expand. And so our thesis was get the cycling right. And if fortunate, then we can, we can expand out into running and who knows, you know, surfing and, and so forth. Now we've been humbled along the way. It turns out it's not necessarily just replicate for every sport and do it the same way. And I could spend hours on all the mistakes we made, but we've, we've, we're at least two for two in recognizing that niching down and, and being very focused on a very specific audience, ironically, then allowed us the opportunity to find the category and to define it. I think what you're, and we're still trying to define it. You know, candidly, we're, the, the, if there's a slight downside to creating something totally new out there is that you really have to, you have to be patient around understanding the business model. And um, we got a fascinating challenge right now. Uh, you asked about the B2C versus the B2B. It would be very easy with this audience to think about business to business opportunities and, and the way in which we could open our community to, uh, to a business model where we're generating a lot of cash, a lot of revenue from, from business partners. We just, we don't want to risk the relationship we have with our athletes, with our community in the process. Yeah. So how do you do that effectively? So, you know, there's some downsides to creating something new, which you just have to be, you have to be patient and, and think through that. Now, you know, on that front, um, there's a lot of talk today about the power of niche networks. There's a lot of uh, talk today about how, um, and you even see it coming directly from Facebook, that Zuckerberg's vision from a few years back of like connecting the world in this happy thing, that, that that's actually bullshit. That we, what we want are smaller tribes. The truth is, you know, if you look at the research, most human beings can only have meaningful relationships with about 100 to 150 people. We don't want to, you know, I don't want people from, I don't know fucking where in my feed because I don't relate to any of that. You know, I care about, most of us care about, I don't know, you tell me, half a dozen to a dozen things that are deeply sort of intertwined with our identity. Uh, and we have interest in those things and people who are interested in those things and that's it. And so there's this sort of interesting dichotomy. You see Facebook really trying to focus on groups, but you also see marketers, you know, uh, one of the things I've learned from some of the young gun CMOs that I see is that they build massive communities of interest inside their own niche network, walled garden, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes it's just an email list. Um, and they do that 18, 24, 36 months ahead of them even having a product. And then when they launch a product, they have a quote unquote engaged audience. And so there's just all this sort of uh, wisdom now showing up around concepts of community and engagement and, and, and uh, around these niche ideas and niche interests. And, and, you know, you've been doing this for over a decade. And so what are the big learnings about how do I create a network of highly committed, highly engaged folks? I mean, clearly one of them is focused on the niche, but what would be maybe some of the others? Yeah, uh, this is an interesting one, Christopher, because I've sat and had some pretty ferocious debates with people over the past. Uh, and the, the one debate starts is like, are you sure you want a, a community, a network as a business? Um, and I always contrast that to, for instance, you know, a great company that we both know that I admire, you know, an Apple. I, I would argue they have tremendous customers who are loyal, including myself. But I don't consider myself part of the community. 
we define community at Strava as the simple fact that our members constantly interact with each other. So therein lies the difference. So that's one important difference. I get everybody over and over is always asking me, how do we build a community like you did at Strava? How do we, it's like, wait, are you talking about loyal customers or are you talking about actual community interaction and so forth? So that's one, just make sure that people think through that. Then the second thing I always remind people is that we did not start out by trying to think about how we'd build this niche network. That was not Strava's intent. Our intent was, can we build a piece of software that is as meaningful to our athlete as their bicycle? As their, it's, you have, because you, you have to start with a single customer. I still remember customer number one. He's a gentleman here and I won't put his name out there, but we know who customer number one was. Uh, he's still here, he's still on Strava, he's a wonderful friend. Uh, but we had to create something that worked for him and, and him only. If it wasn't of value to him without any of his friends on it, it made no sense. So that single player mode I've referred to a couple of times, it's so critical. It's the idea that somehow you can magically just create a, a network business. I think it's a, it's a dangerous one. Not to say it can't be done, but in our case, having that notion of, of um, single player value that, that gets people in, there's high utility. To the experience. It's not just about, hey, my friends are all together here and we're high-fiving each other. There's actual utility to the product. That then afforded us the opportunity to think about other features and benefits inside Strava that came from connecting our athletes. And maybe that's the third point I would make is that the, the utility of the network is what is so important. It's actually something James, our CEO, I think does a really good job of articulating because he often says the value of our community is directly correlated to the utility they're receiving. And the case in point that I'll give you, Strava, because we were focused on cyclists, we learned that they were addicted to climbs. They really loved to go out and go for a ride. And then they wanted to focus on that iconic climb that they would do. And so we first started to figure out, well, how could we auto identify a climb and show them how they were doing? And so we did that in the, in the software. And then the second thing that the athletes started saying to us, well, this is great, but I'd love to know how I'm doing on the climb compared to my buddies. Can you show me that? And so we're like, oh, yeah, that should be pretty easy. And so that was how leaderboards were born inside Strava. This concept of you go out, you go on this iconic climb, and then we can show you on your leaderboard where you rank compared to your friends, compared to anybody who's been on that. Well, by doing that, we created a very authentic way in which there was network value. There was actually the more people you then invited onto Strava, the more you could see how you were comparing and contrasting against them. And so that'd be my third point is that don't rush to just bring people to the party. Give them value. Give them a reason to invite their friends. And that, that's, that's worked well for us. Interesting. Yeah, it's something we're playing with right now in, in our own experimentation around creating a niche network around this, as we lovingly refer to it, oddcast. And how does it work and how do you provide value and how do you know when you've gotten to some level of critical mass where you should like really start inviting people versus if we start inviting people and there's to your point if there's not enough utility in the network and you do some mass campaign to invite everybody and they it's like it's like when you go to a dinner party and if if you're the first person to arrive you're like oh fuck what what? (laughs) exactly we all figuring that out is tough right mark that's right you 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 want to be 15 minutes fashionably late just to ensure that, yeah, there's an actual party. And that is an actual party. Yeah. yeah. Now, clearly, you and I could talk forever. Um, yeah. 
but being respectful of your time, is there anything else you want to touch on, Mark? Oh, Christopher, I, I, I gotta, I just want to thank you. It's uh, it's one thing to do these, uh, these conversations and, and feel like I just spew, but the fact that I get to sit and listen and learn at the same time, it, it's been a real pleasure. Well, the pleasure has been all mine. And it's also why I like doing it this way. You know, that, the traditional um, podcast and particularly business podcast, I find is just, you know, it, it, the, the thinking in the podcast world, particularly around business or self-help or any of these things is like, people just want the quick tips and it's got to be, you know, super short and you got to get to the point and hand, hand them, the, you know, if, if you want to be successful, do these three things and, and these, you know, these cartoon character, <laughs> these dudes and all this sort of stuff. Right. And, and, I don't believe in any of that. I think it's garbage. I think if you want to learn from a legendary entrepreneur like Mark Ganey, what there is to do is sit down and, you know, really get into it. Right. And, and like in any great conversation, we learn from each other, you know? Exactly. Um, anyway, I, I appreciate your time. I, I respect and admire you so much. Uh, I really appreciate how open and candid you've been about both, you know, your personal life and your business life. I think you have much to teach. I hope you write a book one day, Mark, or maybe do a, if you don't want to write a book, if you want to do a, a little podcast series, I think, you know, I, I think guys like you have so much to share from, you know, 30 years of, you know, living the life that you've led both as a, a, a you know, as a, as a dad and, and as an entrepreneur, I just think, you've learned some very powerful things and you, your list of accomplishments is massive. And hopefully one day you'll get a chance to write some of it down or, or, or be more active in podcasting or, cause I really appreciate how much, how much um, you have to share. Uh, Christopher, thanks so much. You know, the, the feeling is mutual. So, and uh, Michael and I have joked a couple of times about writing and then we realize that the book, the book's not done yet. We got, we got 30, 40 more years that we want to keep, keep uh, creating some stuff, but um, let's, uh, let's figure out a way to do this again. Maybe we do it out on a couple of longboards off the coast. There. I, w I would love to do that. If you, if you think surfing with a mediocre longboarder in Santa Cruz sounds like a good idea, I'm your guy. <laughs> I, I, tr trust me, you will, be, uh, you will be coaching me. So that would be great. Well, I'd love to see you uh, come down and visit me anytime. It would be great to get together for a surf and a beer. Um, so you let me know when you want to do that, Mark. You got it. I'll be in touch. Brother. All right. Take care. There he is, the legendary Mark Ganey. And I hope if you enjoyed that episode as much as I did, you would consider sharing it. Um, just so you know, uh, about 80% of our listeners report that how they heard about this podcast is from a friend. And I want you to know that me and everybody involved here at Follow Your Different deeply, deeply appreciate you sharing uh, this podcast with your friends. Now, a 225,000-square-foot baking facility outside of the Indianapolis airport is not exactly the place you might think of first when you think of innovation in the bakery category and industry. Uh, but that's where NetSuite customer Kraft Mark Bakery is. They are a B2B supplier of frozen baked goods. And they launched in 2013. And they've been making a huge mark in the competitive baking industry. Who knew? <laughs> Craftmark needed to ensure from the beginning that they had efficient operations and that they could remain agile to reinvent their business processes. And that's part of why they selected my friends at NetSuite over SAP and Microsoft, because NetSuite allows for a fast implementation time and robust customization and manufacturing capabilities, all with a very low 
total cost of ownership. Since going live in November 2014, Craftmark has run their business on NetSuite, including demand planning, procurement, real-time variance analysis, customized reporting, uh, and mobile warehouse management. NetSuite is the platform for growth for over 18,000 companies. And as a listener to this podcast, they're offering you a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. So visit netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. And there you'll be able to set up your free one-hour growth review. Because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. And with NetSuite, you'll always know. All right. We would like to thank the incredible Mark Ganey, co-founder of Strava, S-T-R-A-V-A.com. Check them out. You're going to love it. Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. This is the instant classic uh, that is my first book written with three other super smart guys. Check it out wherever you get legendary books. Play Bigger. Growwire.com. It's what uh, entrepreneurs are reading today on the internet. Great stories of innovation. A great podcast. A great YouTube channel. Check out growwire.com. Now, do you, like me, live in beautiful Santa Cruz, California? Is it time to take your fitness to the next level? Then why not start training like it matters with my friends at Paradigm Sport. That's ParadigmSport.com. And if you're want to, uh, if you a young person looking to break into the business world, it's time to crash your career. Go to Crash.co slash different to learn how you can do that. Crash.co slash different where you learn how to crash your career and start strong. And a podcast I want to tell you about that I love. My friend Eric Unley is the host of the Unstructured Podcast. And if you like freeform dialogue, you're going to love this podcast. Check out Unstructured with Eric Unley wherever you get legendary podcasts. All right, this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we love it uh, that you're here. And we uh, need to tell you that all rights do remain perturbed. <laughs> we must warn you that clearly this podcast is created in a studio that does contain nuts. Please teach entrepreneurship. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Listen to the Ramones. Thank you, Dandy Candy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Elizabeth Holmes, founder of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing your life with us. Uh, to work together again, stay legendary and follow your difference.